what I want to give you guys the opportunity to do is really ask questions. Um, one of the things that um, I love to try to offer students the opportunity, whether that be um, in a classroom setting and in a church setting, wherever, is really creating a culture of questions where asking anything is okay. You don't have to be afraid to ask a question. You don't have to say, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm not supposed to ask that, or I should know that, right? This idea that, well, I, I ought to know this, so then I'm not going to ask the question, and maybe I'll just figure it out for myself. And then by the time you figure it out for yourself, you've gone home, and you've forgotten all about your question until it pops up again. Um, because chances are, your question is on the mind of somebody else, maybe not exactly the same version, but still um, a version of um, so really, this is your time to, to ask really anything, okay? Um, we'll use the microphone because we are recording, so it'll give us a chance to, uh, to get everything in there. Um, but uh, So we'll come around with, with mics, that way everybody can hear you. Um, and um, I'll give you a couple minutes to sort of think about what is it you want to ask if, if, you, uh, if you haven't. So you know, you have, if you get something to write on, take a few minutes, write out a few questions. Anything, I mean, we can, we can talk... Um, political landscape if you want. We can talk theology. We can talk apologetics. We can, if, if you were in the other two talks this morning and there's something that I wasn't clear on that you want to expand it on or something that you hoped I had, was going to touch on that I didn't and you want me to, then I'm more than happy to do that. Um, but um, like I said, this is your time and we'll go for it as long as we need to. Uh, if it gets too late, we'll, we'll, we'll shut it down. But um, if you don't get a chance to ask your question um, or I don't get a chance to answer it, um, any of the ways behind me to connect with me, feel free to, uh, to shoot me a message and ask. So, yeah. Why do we doubt God? Why do we doubt God? Let's just jump right in. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Why do we doubt God? Well, I think, you know, Paul says it pretty good, I think, in Romans. You know, in Romans 1, Paul talks about um, the, the depth of, of human sin, right? He talks about it from both a Jew perspective and a Gentile perspective. That the Jews ought to know better, and they didn't. And the Gentiles have been given everything that they need to know based on general revelation. Interestingly enough, we doubt because we have a need to be our own gods. We have this sort of innate desire based on sin, based on original sin, that's what Adam and Eve did, right? They had a better way. They had a better idea. And to, to a degree, if you watch this, this will happen in your own life just based on authority. Some of you, when someone of an authority figure tells you what to do or tells you you ought to do this, sometimes you react with, oh, I don't really want to do that. For no other reason but an authority figure is telling you that. And that's, there's no other reason. I was talking with one of the pastors this morning. And he, we were kind of laughing and lamenting a little bit on how, you know, your own youth group, you don't have as much authority as if you brought in somebody from the outside. But you could say the exact same thing. But the person from the outside has the greater authority just based on the fact that they're from the outside. And so we, we sort of have this weirdness about us that we just don't like authority. We want to do things our own way. So it's not that we doubt God. It's that we just kind of go... Thanks, God, for your opinion. I appreciate that, but I got this idea. And what God does, he's so nice about it. What he does is says, all right, that's cool. Do your thing. 
We'll see how that works out for you. And sometimes it, we think it works out okay until much later. Most of the time, we realize pretty quickly that it just doesn't work out. We're free will beings. We have to be able to choose not God in order to be able to choose God. We have to be able to deny him, walk away from him, in order to walk toward him. Otherwise, we're not freely loving him, and he can't freely allow us to love him. So in God's perfect creation, he created us with the ability to do good and the ability to do evil. Just the problem is because of Adam and Eve's awesomeness, we will almost always choose evil until God remakes it all and brings it all back. Yeah. Um, you can explain this in a couple of different ways. Some people will say that angels have free will, but a different kind of free will. I'm not sure exactly what people mean by that because we don't really know what kind of free will they have. The best way I describe that is in the, if you take the idea of saying, well, imagine yourself in the presence of God, right? Imagine yourself in that glorious presence. It's hard to do. So now take yourself and put yourself in the best possible spiritual experience you've ever had. That, that, that moment, you know, worship moment where everything just seems to be coming together, right? And it's perfect. You can sort of imagine yourself making every perfect decision. Suddenly people that you've hated, suddenly you love them and everything is wonderful. And, you know, every sin you've ever committed, you're like ready just to, you know, lay out on the table and let everybody know and bury your soul and be like, this is who I am and I'm sorry for all of it. And suddenly in that moment... When God fills us with his spirit, we're just, we feel like we're able to do anything. And the way I say that is imagine that 24-7. Imagine that all the time, nothing but the presence of God and that bliss of I am with him. I, the desire is gone, right? The desire to pull away from him is gone. Why? Because you're in his presence all the time. The presence in which we feel him now is not exactly the same. Obviously, as it's going to be then. So sometimes we feel it, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes it's there, and sometimes it's not. I mean, he's always there, but you know, we kind of get we get distracted by our own thing, and that distraction causes us to sort of eh, walk away, do other things, not care, and it causes us to even sin even more. Does that that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah. How do you like defend like the biblical? How do you like defend the biblical view for? like the transgender issue to people who don't believe the Bible. Mm. Yeah. So what I start with is what is your basis for authority? So it's a more general conversation than just that, right? So I would go much more general. So let's just say your basis for morality. How do you know what right and wrong is? So let's let's just dialogue this out because it's much easier this way. So how do you know what right and wrong is? Okay, let's pretend you're not. So how would you, if, if you were playing the role of someone who does not believe in Scripture, does not believe in Jesus, how would, they, how would you answer that question? Like what your society says? Okay, so how does the society then determine right and wrong? Yeah, like if it harms others or not. Okay, so then who gets to decide, who gets to decide what is harmful? The leaders. How do the leaders know these things? 
You see where I'm going, right? I won't, I won't keep putting you on the spot. But you see where I'm going. Imagine, if you will, if you, if you took your phone out, right? You, had your, you have your compass on your phone, right? If you take your phone out, you have your compass, and you need to know where east and west and south are. How do you figure that out? Your phone will tell you where north is, right? So directionally, you know where north is. So if I know where north is, I don't know where north is currently, but if let's just say the doors are north, then I know where, e- where west is, where east is, and where south is. Right? It gives me a central point of reference. Okay? So morality is kind of like that, where we need some kind of central point of reference to show us, well, this is what right is, this is what wrong is, because this is my standard. Let me give you another example. Um, little Johnny's a friend of mine. Little Johnny's in the first grade. And he was sent home by his teacher with an assignment. And the assignment was, is find something around the house to measure yourself with. So little Johnny goes home and he gets all excited. He's running around the house trying to figure things out. And he just can't find anything. And all of a sudden he comes up with a brilliant idea. So he gathers his brilliant idea together and he goes off to school the next day and all the children are coming up and they're doing little mini presentations and some, you know, one little kid comes up and says, you know, I'm, you know, three basketballs high. That's probably pretty tall for a first grader, but, you know, I'm up to my dad's waist or whatever, like different examples of how tall they are. So we have a pretty good indication of how tall. Johnny gets up and all proud himself. He says, I'm one Johnny tall. (laughs) Johnny failed miserably. Why? What's that? Right. Johnny will never be more than one Johnny tall. Right? You can't use yourself to measure yourself, otherwise you're left with nothing to measure. So you can't judge your own morality based on yourself or society or anything that's, you know, humanity can't base its own morality off of itself. Then we have nothing to measure. And that goes back to the idea of you can't have relative morals. It doesn't work. So I would start with to get back to the specific question, I would start with saying, well, how do you know that's an okay thing to be, right? How do you know that's an okay behavior, an okay thing? Well, I just feel that way. Well, I feel like punching people in the face sometimes, but I don't always do it. I don't always do it. <laughs> um, just because I feel like that's okay doesn't make it okay, right? When I was in high school, I, I would, you know, drink and, and I, you know, in college, I did some drugs, and I was like, well, I felt like that was perfectly okay to do because I felt like it. Well, I never made it right. So by what standard do we understand these things to be okay or not okay? We have to have something beyond ourselves. Now, maybe you don't like the Bible, but the Bible serves as a pretty good indication of what's right and wrong, and we use it for a lot of other things too. Now, then we could get into a conversation about why I think the Bible is reliable and useful for these things, but that's where I would start. Does that make sense? Cool. Yeah. Oh. Uh, right. um, and uh, it said that some true, like some true homosexuals who choose gays are physiologically different in the brain than straight gays. Mm-hmm. And I said, I asked the teacher, I was like, so would that technically be, no offense to anybody, well, we're all not, but hopefully not. But no offense to anybody in the class, but like, would that technically be like a birth defect? Like, that would be a view of that, like, mm. you know, like a Down syndrome, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know that I would make that equation based on just, I think that would be really touchy to do that. You know what I mean? I, I also, one that says that I think children who have Down syndrome are some of the, the greatest, greatest of all God's creations. Because um, the, the love in which they uh, exude, I think, is the exact love of God. But um, that be another point. Um, let, me, let me explain my view on homosexuality like this. Can we, can we be like totally real? Is that cool? All right. So, the problem with um, the homosexuality debate is that it's not black and white. It's very, very gray. It's very, very interesting. Um, so, most people, this will freak some of you out, most people go through some sort of same-sex attraction, identity issues, curiosity, questions, whether or not it gets acted on. I, mean, I don't know, it just depends. It doesn't necessarily make it this horrible, horrible, sinful thing necessarily, because it depends on what you do with it, okay? But what happens oftentimes is that there is some evidence that there is something going on in the brain, right? And I would simply say, well, that's a product of the world we live in, right? We are a broken world, right? People are prone to be, to be you know, um, um, with addictive behaviors, with um, prone to be, you know, um, murderers and rapists. I mean, people are prone to do things with incredibly difficult mental challenges. Now, I wouldn't chalk homosexuality up into, like, mental disease. I wouldn't put it there. But I would say that there's something going on because of the, the sinful world that we live in and because that we are a broken, a broken um, uh, creation. And God is trying to make it, is working on making it new. But the problem is that with homosexuality, there is multiple sort of levels on the spectrum. There's the one that just sort of had some same-sex attraction and doesn't do anything about it and just goes on with life and it goes away. There's the person that has the questions and is afraid to ask the questions and is leaning that way and then doesn't know where to go. And there's the person that is, considers themselves gay and doesn't actually do anything about it and just sort of lives that life and identifies that way but doesn't actually do anything. And then there's the practicing homosexual, Okay. Now, if you were to ask someone who's an alcoholic that's recovering, they would tell you if they were a recovering alcoholic for 20 years and they haven't touched a drink for 20 years, what would they call themselves? Sober, but they would call, them, they call themselves still an alcoholic, right? They still identify that way because that's part of the healing process for them. Okay? Now, again, I'm still not going to put that in the same category, but just as a uh, best example that I can come up with. What happens oftentimes is you get a, ki- a kid, a lot of times your age, that is in that moment of like, well, I kind of have some same-sex attraction, but I'm not really sure, and I have a question. Well, now you have two scripts, okay? You have what's called, what's, what psychologists call the gay script and the Christian script. And the Christian script generally is don't ask, don't tell, don't talk about it, and we don't want to know about it. And the gay script is you're born that way. We love you. You are loved. And if it's from the, from the Christian side of that, you are loved by God. And some of those things are true. Well, if you're in that position, where are you going to go? Yeah. You're going to go to where you're loved. And what happens is a lot of people end up going into a lifestyle that they never really intended to go to. And it does happen that way. Okay? And there are lots of people that would say that they have same-sex attraction and would consider themselves gay and actually not act on it. Are they sinning? No. That's fine. Okay? It's the act of unrepentant homosexual behavior that we have to sort of um, deal with. Okay? Um, so, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. Does that help? Okay, so I kind of went like this and tried to come back to it. Yeah. So if I didn't come back, 
yell at me. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Is predestination like real? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Sweet. All right. So here's the deal. Um, I try not to get into the um, once saved, always saved, you're predestined, you're not. I don't agree with, just from a theological perspective, I don't necessarily agree the idea of double predestination, which is some people are predestined to heaven, some people are predestined to hell. That's tough, right? God views time, we'll start here, God views time from beyond, right? So the way I describe that, it's called the eternal now, okay? So imagine you are um, standing at a railroad track, and the train's going by like this, right? And the train is time. And you're seeing car by car, right? And every car is a moment. So you just see moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, right? That's how you see time. You can't help that. That's just the way we're, we're finite beings. That's just the way it is, right? So we don't know where it's going. We kind of know where it came from. We might know some general directions. But other than that, until we get to a different moment, we don't know what's going on. God, on the other hand, is if the, it stands back and sees the train from its, be, its beginning and its end and everything in between in one moment. So that's how God sees all of time. So what God sees in you is that he knows that you are going to make certain choices. You have free will to make all those choices. He knows exactly what choices you're going to make. So to say you're predestined, well, that's a little bit different. Right? Now, when Paul talks about predestined in, like, in Ephesians, for example, He's not talking about you as an individual. He's talking about the Gentiles. That before the foundation of the world, before all this happened, God predestined the Gentiles, most of us, unless you're Jewish, would come to be able to participate in God's salvation project. That's predestined, right? It's before the foundation of the world, God said this. So I try not to sort of say, well, some people are, you know, are destined to be saved and some people are not. Well, you could say that because God knows. But he just knows. He knows if you're going to change your mind. He knows how many times you're going to backslide. He knows, you know, whatever it is, right? He gets it. Does that make sense? Okay. So you said, you said in, I believe, in your first seminar that there's an absolute truth. And yes. so I heard a Christian say that Christianity is not as black and white as we think it is, but there is an absolute truth, then there must be truths on like what we can do and what we cannot. What do you mean by Christianity isn't as black and white as we think? As people think that we should do this or we should do that. I think sometimes it's not. I mean, the Bible doesn't speak directly to a lot of things. Um, so the Bible's not an instruction book, and we ought not to see it that way. It's literature, and it's got a really, some really cool stuff in it. All of it is true, but it's not necessarily, like the Old Testament is not designed to teach moral lessons. It's not what the Old Testament's for, and the Jews didn't see it that way. So the example I often give is David and Bathsheba, right? So many times David and Bathsheba is taught as a lesson in don't commit Adultery. That's not the point of that story. The point of that story is actually when the Bible says David, while all the other kings were at war, David was at home. 
David messed something up. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And the way in which he handled the situation was representative of him trying to build his own kingdom rather than God's. As the greatest king in Israel's history, he still was building his own kingdom. David had a ton of wives. Bathsheba was just one of the potentials. Okay? So and he shamed her. He did some horrible things to her and obviously to her husband. But, and there's a whole shame in how the language is written in there. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. So in some sense, yeah, it isn't as black and white as some people make it out to be, as in don't do, don't do this and do this or don't do that. But the trick of it is, is just because the Bible does not say explicitly don't have an abortion, let's say, right? Let's throw that out there because that's not a small topic. <laughs> that doesn't mean that we can say, well, culture changes or, you know, those kind of things. Just because the Bible doesn't say don't have premarital sex doesn't mean you ought not to. Why doesn't the Bible say that? Because that wasn't an option. When you were, you know, in the Jewish world, when you're married girls at 12 or 13, it's just not an option. Abortions really weren't an option. So why would the Bible talk about that? But we can sort of say, based on what God says about life, based on what God says about the sanctity of marriage and what sex is actually for, I love the fact that this is recorded because I get to say things like that. (laughs) (laughs) We can sort of get some pretty good ideas about where God stands on those things. Um. Oh, that's cool. Um, how do you say, like, the best way to read the Bible is? Like, start from the beginning to the end? Or, like, read, like, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, or, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, the Bible isn't crafted chronologically. You know, so these things aren't, it's not chronological in here. Um, whoops. I don't know that, I don't think it matters. Um, I think it matters that you read it. Um, and I think what you need to do is alongside it, you know what you, can, you, know what you should do? There's a, there's a group of books. I think I might actually have one in here. Maybe. I don't. Um, there's a, uh, a series of commentaries called the Bible for, like the New Testament for everyone, the Old Testament for everyone. The Old Testament for everyone is written by a guy named John Golden Gay. He's a professor at Fuller. Uh, and the New Testament ones are written by N.T. Wright, who's a professor at St. Andrews. And they're awesome. You can almost read them like devotionals. So you can take it through an entire book and he'll give you the scripture passage and then he'll talk through it. So it's a cool way to like just say I'm going to tackle on a whole book and you can just have the book. You can use your Bible if you want, but the, the actual full scripture is in there. So I tell people, number one, pick a book, but read the whole thing. Sit down. If you're going to read Romans, sit down and tackle Romans and just read it. Because it's a letter. It's meant to be read in one sitting. When was the last time you know, one of your friends sent you a text and you read like three words and went, sweet, I'll read the rest tomorrow? <laughs> Probably not, <laughs> right? You get an email, you read like three sentences. All right, that's enough for today. You know, I'll reflect on that and then I'll, you know, no, you read the whole thing. It's tough. So start with something short, you know, do like a Philippians or Philemon, something that's really super short, and get the whole scope of it, get the whole argument of it and what's going on, and then go from there. And then a lot of times when they go back and they're referencing Old Testament passages, go back and look at those references and see what they're referencing and start connecting dots because the Old Testament and New Testament are completely connected. Okay? 
What do you think defines a good relationship with God? What defines a good relationship? One that is in constant communication. That's why, that, that, that's, that, that's the, my, the, I don't answer too many things short, but I'll answer that one really short. <laughs> How do you defend Christianity against other religions? That's all I do. <laughs> <laughs> that is the practice of apologetics. Um, it's, it's a discipline, uh, and it's something you just get, sort of get used to doing. Um, you want to start by reading some books and, and, and sort of just start having conversations. Um, Christianity makes the claim that we have absolute truth, so therefore, we have um, sort of a leg up on every other worldview. If the Christian worldview is true, that means every other worldview is some sort of uh, idolatrous worldview, you could even say. I mean, that's, that's kind of a bold statement to make, but there's many that would argue. I think they're, they're accurate. But you have to be able to show that Christianity is true. And there is tons, tons of evidence I mean, just, just to give you a quick little, uh, little thing, is um, there's something called historical bedrock. And what that means is that all historians in mainline uh, academia agree. So when it comes to Jesus and the resurrection, there's a few things that all historians agree on. Okay? And maybe you, maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't. Number one, Jesus existed. There's like no argument there. Right? Jesus was, in fact, a real person. Nobody argues this. Number two... Jesus lived and died in the first century and died at the hands of the Roman government and Pontius Pilate and was buried, and died via crucifixion and was buried. Historical fact. Okay? But here's the one that most people don't know. The tomb was found empty. It's historical bedrock. Virtually nobody disagrees with the fact that the tomb was found empty. Now the question becomes, where did he go? <laughs> Now, the person with the, yeah, need some music behind that. The person with the best explanation gets to say, right? And there's a lot of different ones. The disciples hallucinated, um, the, that Jesus really wasn't buried in a tomb. He was, written, he, was written, he was buried in a shallow grave and eaten by dogs. Um, there's the swoon theory where Jesus didn't really die. You heard how Brian described that last night. Okay, there's no way anybody lives through that. And that's all historically accurate. So it's like, okay, but there's a swoon theory that, you know, he just passed out and he revived himself. Okay. Um, you know, there's all these other explanations and every single one of them gets refuted over and over and over again. And the only explanation that seems to stand is that he actually resurrected. So it's really interesting. We get this historical bedrock information about like, what we, got. we have evidence to believe these things. We have evidence to back up what we make claims for. Um, so that's kind of exciting. So you start to kind of learn those things. You start to kind of figure it out, how to have conversations with people. And it just becomes sort of a, a part of life and a part of what you do. Um, there's a ton of resources. Self, shameless plug. Um, that, you, that you can check out. Yeah. Hi, so I wasn't in your session earlier, but you said something about like absolute truth or Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could quickly explain that. Sure. Where do I start? Um, Most of us believe that there's some kind of truth, but your world is what we call postmodernism or relativism. 
Okay? And basically the idea is, is in postmodern thought, which is most of you guys are being brought up in and most of you guys are surrounded in, is the idea that there is no absolute truth. That truth is of your own making. Okay? Now, if I say that truth is of your own making, you tell me there's no absolute truth, my response to you is, are you absolutely sure there's no absolute truth? <laughs> is that an absolutely true statement? There is no absolute truth. Well, now we're at, we're, we're, we sort of have a problem. right? It's a self-refuting statement. Or we say it commits suicide. So this idea of truth, what we're saying is that there's absolute truth or objective truth. And when Jesus says things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody gets to follow it but by me, or we have Paul saying that God has given us everything that we need to believe, and everything else is idolatry, and we're held accountable to that, as it says in Romans, that is stating that there's something that's absolutely true about the Christian worldview right? So when Jesus says, I am the way, it's not a mistake in translation, right? He's saying, I'm the only way. You want to get to God, you have to go to, you have to go through me first. That's the way you get to God. That's the way we reconnect to our creator. That's the way God is reconciling himself to his creation. There's no other way to do that. There's no other way to find meaning in life. There's no other way to find ultimate purpose. There's no other way that explains how we got here, who we are, why we're here, what's going on, why we do things the way we do them, all of the questions that we have, Christianity is claiming that it has the answers. But these are the only answers. And if it is, then we're saying that is absolutely true. Now we're putting the idea of morality and, 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 and our religion up in the, the, the area of objective truth. We're saying that this is independent of me and independent of you. So whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you care or not, these things stand as consistent with reality. Does that make sense? Cool. If God loves all of his people, why would he send non-believers to hell? It's a good question. Short answer, then I'll expand, is God gives us exactly what we want. Um, and that's, that's a tough one. That's a tough answer. Um, but... People actively reject God, right? Now, we can get into the conversation if someone has a follow-up question, and maybe I'll just do it for you, is what about those who have never heard? Because that's generally the follow-up question. So first, let's talk about people that have heard. Active rejecting of God, right? God can love, and, but, but because you have free will, God loves you, but is never going to force you to do anything that you don't want to do, Right? Because otherwise, that's not love. That's slavery. Okay? So he gives you the option. I'm going to give you every reason to believe in me. I'm going to give you every reason to trust me. I'm going to give you every reason to come into my kingdom and have a party. But if you don't want it, that's cool. I'll give you what you want. But here's the part that I think is the scariest. We have something called common grace, right? Common grace is the air I breathe. Whether I believe in God or not, I wake up in the morning and I breathe air. Why? Because God said so. Every morning I just wake up. <laughs> Whether or not, it's because God said so. It doesn't matter if I believe or not. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, right? Because God said so. Imagine a world with no common grace. I think that's hell. All of the stuff that God allows, 
people to have, whether you believe him or not. So the fact that there is food, the fact that there is air, the fact that there is water, the fact that you have breath to, to breathe, the fact that you wake up, the fact that your body is functioning, all of those things are common grace that God is allowing to happen. Imagine those things no longer being available to you. That's just, that, that thought just scares the heck out of me. You know, I don't like scare tactics very often, but that one gets me. Now, what about those who have never heard, right? Paul says in Romans that we're held accountable to what we know. And that God has given us every reason to know certain things based off of general revelation. What that exactly means in terms of people who have never heard the name Jesus, I don't know. But based on God's character, I would hazard to guess, because obviously I don't know for sure, because it doesn't say explicitly, that God has a way for those who have never heard. You know, if it's our fault that they've never heard, it's not really that they're going to be punished and sent to hell, right? But if they're actively worshiping demons, which some, you know, tribal nations do, that's a different story. Right? They've had some, they, and some do have a knowledge of God. It's really interesting. There's some weird, there's some interesting tribal nations that have a concept, and you really look at what they believe, it's actually very Christian just without Jesus. It's really fascinating. So, would someone like that be probably okay? I would say probably. I, mean, I can't be dogmatic on it, but I would say probably. I'd like to hope so. Oh. <laughs> I'll come to you next. So uh, I think it was like two days ago the pastor was talking about and kind of like inferring that every bad thing that happens in our life is due to God either making it happen or letting it happen for our own growth. Personally, from what I grew up with, I have a different view, and that was that we were given free will on earth. That's why we have sin and disease and all the terrible things that do happen. Mm -hmm. And because of that, God has chosen to limit his involvement in our lives. Um, And God uses what we go through for his ultimate good but isn't involved in every single thing in our life and, like, making it happen for his, like, him forcing that to happen. Yeah, I would, I'd probably go with that. And, you know, I often use the example of, I got a really great parking spot. God must be on my side today. Uh, Probably not. Now, could you say, I got a really great parking spot because I'm in a hurry to get this place and I got, you know, there could be a, maybe, you know, right, that's possible. Um, some terrible things happen in the world because we just live, live in a really messed up world. And it just happens. And I think when those things happen, God just weeps. You know, I saw a post today on, on Facebook from Ravi Zacharias that just said, Jesus wept, hashtag Orlando. I mean, just like, I think that's, that's true. I think, you know, Jesus just looks at it and just like... And, but it's the end game, right? He knows what's coming. He knows that there's, you know, vindication coming. We all know that in the end, we win. And it's like... You know, I always look at, I, a pastor once told me that, you know, Satan's going to keep trying because he knows he loses, but he's going to take as many people with him as he can. And I, I, I get that, you know. So I think bad things just happen because bad things happen. And we live in a world that just, it just happens. But I think at the same time that God can use those bad things if we have the right perspective to, to make it into something really, really good. So, yeah, let's come up here. We had a question up here. Um, so when you're talking about how... Uh, People have never heard the gospel, like, or they've never been told about God or anything. How mm-hmm. they, like, um, can still, like, they're still in, like, they still have, like, a general idea. Um, do you, is that kind of, like, how it is with, like, young children who pass away? Like, 
do are they in kind of like God's special care kind of? Yeah, this, this is a funny story. Is um, when my first daughter was born, um, we were um, my wife was dealing with some anxiety issues and some different things, and and we were working through some stuff. And she was only a month old, and we're at a New Year's party. And our pastor says to my wife, brand new mom, you better hurry up and get her saved in case she dies and goes to hell. So I can bring a new mom. I about punched him out. I'm like, are you, it took me a month to like fix that. Like, like, oh. so here's the thing. I don't know. <laughs> Terrible thing to say. Um, so here's, yeah, you know, I don't know. Um, he's not pastoring anymore. Um, <laughs> he's not. Um, so babies, when they're born, people say you're born, let me say it this way. People say you're born into sin. Okay. You don't have to agree with me on this, but this is how I, this is how I teach it. People say you're born into sin. Well, when a baby is born, a newborn baby is there and all they're doing is looking at you and screaming their, their head off because they're learning how to breathe. Um, they're not sinning. They have the capacity, and they're going to, right? But they have not yet sinned. It is the most pure and perfect thing you will ever lay eyes upon. It is wonderful, okay? And that stays that way until about eight, nine months. And I kid you not, it's like a switch. All of a sudden, they can manipulate you and do crazy things, and they start to gain a capacity to sin. And they start to actually do it. And they get it. They start knocking their food on the ground like, I know what I'm doing. And it's funny. My one-year-old already knows, like, I don't want this. I want what you're having. And because everybody else is having, that's just like his thing right now. He doesn't want. And it's like, and he's being disrespectful, if you will, at one. Well, okay, fine. But does he know different? No. So he's only held accountable to what he knows, right? Which is nothing, Okay. <laughs> So, so it's not like, oops, baby died, going straight to hell. That's terrible, and I don't know God to be that kind of a God, right? God created that. Knows that's going to happen because he's completely sovereign and all-knowing. Why are you like, yep, I know that baby's going to die and go straight to hell? What? That doesn't make any sense. That is so inconsistent with Scripture and inconsistent with God's character, Right? So I get infant baptism, I get dedication, I get all of that, and that's totally fine. But, you know, at, at what point are babies then saved? I mean, there's no such thing as age accountability. That's a Jewish thing in terms of, like, um, uh, when you're being held accountable within your own community. So, you know, my seven-year-old gets it. My seven-year-old's saved. Okay, good. My two-year-old probably not there yet, but she gets it to the point where she understands what she can, what she can understand, right? Because we've taught her. I'm held accountable to them. So if something happens to them, I have to stand before the throne and give an account to how I taught them, right? So that's probably more the point, I think, than whether or not a baby, where they go and what happens. That makes sense? If someone doesn't have the mental ability to believe or have a relationship with God, will he try to 
help them know him, or does he just know that they're going to go to heaven because they can't understand him? Again, I think they're held accountable to what they can understand. You know, I think there's a degree to which if someone can't understand the full capacity of their own salvation and act upon it, there's, there's grace in that. There, there, there has to be, right? Because God knows that that, that, that individual has been um, formed that way and is based on sin. Now, I think sometimes, I made the comment about, you know, downs. I think God uses those kinds of situations to get the rest of us on board and get our priorities straight oftentimes. I mean, God uses those kinds of situations for his glory. And I think that person is, is rightly rewarded for that. Um, so I, ha- I have a question. Um, my, I, ha- I have a, like a bunch of nieces and nephews, and um, they're kind of from a, from a broken home. My sister, uh, you know, the first one was born when she was 15. And uh, the three younger ones have, you know, one of them is a different dad, and then the two younger ones, the dad's in jail right now for, like, drive-by shootings and stuff like that. He's, he's, he's a gang member. And, um, and I feel like it's important for children to know their father growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, me personally, like, my, uh, my, my mom and dad divorced, but I always grew up knowing my father, and I have a good relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I know this guy is not a good guy. Uh, is, is there, what would you, like, recommend in a godly sense, you know, like, what, like, what do I do? I, I'm kind of, it's kind of like, you know, stuck in a, in a hard place. So, and yeah. I want to bring them up as Christians, too, because I, you know, I see them all the time. So yeah. I put, you know, put on the VeggieTales and all that stuff, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I just want to know, like, what, you know, as an yeah. uncle I could do. Yeah. Um, yeah, the unfortunate thing is, is when fathers are absent or fathers are um, misrepresenting God, it often distorts our view of God as father, and that can really mess us up. Um, so I think, the, I think, honestly, the best thing you can do is be as much Jesus as you can possibly be, because they'll see you as the, the primary male role model, and that will be a significant help in that. Um, I mean, you can only do what you can do. But if you are the best representation of Jesus that you can be, and you are the means by which they understand Jesus, you are doing more than you could possibly ever imagine you're doing. Because that, that will pay dividends that you may never even see, but that are eternal and, and very, very, very cool. And you got to get Buck Denver, too. It's the new thing. Have you guys ever have seen Buck Denver yet? Buck, Buck Denver is Phil Vischer's new thing. Phil Vischer, the guy who created VeggieTales. It's the, new, it's the newest thing, and it is awesome. <laughs> so good. How do you evangelize to Mormons? Mm. I just did this the other day. I had two lovely, lovely young ladies come to my door and my wife laughs at me because the doorbell rings and it never happens. And I look out the window and I come running around the corner um, and I get all excited. Um, I focus on um, two things, nature of Jesus and the Trinity. Um, Mormons, it's interesting. Some people will go as far as saying more Mormonism is a cult. And that could be, I don't know if I put it as a cult, but it's not Christian, Right distinctively not. Now, a Mormon would tell you, oh, you know, we're Christians. 
And so that kind of throws us sometimes. Like, what, what, oh, okay. We get all like, oh, then cool. Let's like, you know, have coffee and we'll, we'll hang out and it'd be, it'd be all good, right? Um, I love the fact that they go door to door and, 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 work, and work in that capacity. I think that's tremendously brave. And I wish more of us would do that. I'm not sure that that's the best way to do it, but at least they're brave enough to give it a shot. Um, I know they're required in certain capacities and how they do things. So I typically focus on Jesus and the Trinity. Now, it's the nature of who Jesus is. And the trick of it is, is you've got to be careful because they're only given as much information as they're allowed to have for wherever they are in their, their process. So I was talking with uh, two ladies um, a few months back, and I started going through, like, the history I said, well, don't you guys believe, I said, correct me if I'm wrong, don't you guys believe that Joseph Smith and Jesus are on the same level? Oh, no, no, no. And I'm like, mm, yeah, that's what you believe. <laughs> like, mm, sorry. And I, so then I kind of like backtracked. I had to figure out a way, okay, okay this is not going the way I thought it was going to go because I was going to make them feel really stupid. I just didn't want to do that. And I was kind of like, oh, okay. So I said, well, then explain to me. So I kind of had them explain to me. And so I just kept asking more questions, trying to get them to get to that point where, you know, Jesus is created in their minds and that Jesus is sort of like Lord of this planet and there are other planets. I mean, you get deep into Mormonism and it gets pretty interesting, you know. Um, And the question I usually ask them is, they'll tell you that they believe in the Bible. And my question to them always is, if you believe in the Bible, why do you need the Book of Mormon? If you say Jesus is who, he, if he, who I say he is, then why do you need Joseph Smith? Why did the angel Moroni come to Joseph Smith and say, everybody's doing it wrong and you're going to do it right. And I'm going to give you this ability to interpret these golden tablets and create the Book of Mormon. And how does that, why? Why do we need that? And now we're talking about the Trinity. And they will actually use the exact same language that we use for the Trinity. Three co-equal, co-eternal persons of one triune Godhead is the official Christian theological statement of the Trinity. They'll use that exact statement. And it'll throw you all off. Like, what, 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 what? Well, okay, you say that, but then how is it that if Jesus is created and the Son of God, then what does that look like? And I'll start going through Mark 2, John 8, um, what else? Specific places in scripture where um, Jesus claims, Matthew 8, where Jesus claims to be um, God, where Jesus explicitly says, right? In Mark chapter 2, son, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of a thing that God does, right? <laughs> Jesus says in John 8, before Abraham was born, I am kind of equates himself to God, right? So he's not just saying I'm the son of God, but I am God. That's a much different conversation. So I usually go right to that. You know, I do the same thing Jehovah's Witness. I kind of get right into that groove and go from there. Um, you said in the seminar earlier that you were at one point an atheist and mm-hmm. then you're now a Christian again. What caused you to go there and then come <laughs> God's funny. Um, <laughs> the woman who would be my wife, actually, um, she, um, 
My wife and I used to work together. She used to work for me, actually. Um, and when she went off to college, she's significantly younger. She's seven years younger than I am. And she went off to college, and we started dating. So once we started dating, I fired her. And then, um, <laughs> God, I did. I asked her first. But so then she, um, she said to me, if we're going to be serious, then we need to, to go to church. Now, the reason I walked away from the church was because I had no answers. Nobody answered any question I ever had. And it was terrible. And I just, got, I gave up on it. Like, forget this. I'm not believing in this because if you people can't answer my questions and you people are full of it and I'm going to move on with things. And plus I was a, a, a you know, a dopey high school student that needed to do whatever I wanted to do. And I did, you know. Um, I, I could tell you the exact moment that I started, that I made the decision to start drinking and kind of went downhill from there. Um, so she said, hey, um, if we're going to be serious, then, you know, we need to go to church. Well, she was raised Catholic, and I was raised to never go into Catholic church. So um, I was like, well, we'll go, we'll go where my parents are going. So we started um, going. I was kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. And then it just started clicking and things. So it was almost like my openness to do what she wanted me to do caused me to kind of get back into church and start listening again. Um, and then there was a few different messages where all of a sudden it just sort of all came back together and was like, this actually means something. This is actually real. And this is actually... So then I started investigating a little bit deeper. That's why I, that's why I do apologetics because that's ultimately what brought me back. You were talking about reading a book from, in the Bible from the beginning to the end. Do you have any suggestions of which books to start with? Hmm. I'll go Old Testament or New Testament? <laughs> New Testament, I would say Galatians. I'd go Galatians, then I'd go Romans, because Romans is an expansion of what Paul says in Galatians. Um, and then I'd go through, then I'd go to Hebrews. Hebrews is significantly more difficult, but so good. Then from Hebrews, I'd go start exploring some Old Testament stuff because Hebrews helps us connect the Old Testament. So that's where I would go. You know, but if you can get Galatians, you can get the, it's a good gist of everything. You can dive into it. Paul's not crazy. He says some really cool things in there because um, he's pretty ticked off at the Galatian churches. Um, so he says some pretty funny things. But, um, and then, then you can get into the other his other letters, they start, you start seeing the same themes over and over again. Um, how would you recommend witnessing to someone who's Jewish? It depends on what kind of Jewish they are. There is Reformed, there's Orthodox, there's cultural, right? So the Orthodox Jews are the, you know, the ones that wear the full black gear, um, and are very strict on the Sabbath, and, you know, and that's sort of you know, uh, deep into the Torah kind of a Jew, um, which I have deep respect for. Um, you have the, the Reformed Jews who are kind of modernizing everything, which is fine. Uh, and then you have um, just the cultural you know, Jew. Like my, my uncle is Jewish, but he's a secular humanist. Okay. So, you know, it's like, okay, um, I'm not sure how that makes any sense. But, you know, he's, he's just culturally speaking, he's Jewish, but doesn't believe in anything. Um, so is that yeah. that one? Okay, so that, treat it like an atheist, um, because that's generally where, where, where they're standing. And the Jewish part is just a cultural label uh, rather than an actual belief system. What I do is in, 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 um, at my school, we teach a, uh, an apologetics class. And basically what we go through, and in my, um, in my book that's up there, I teach how to do that is you go through 
five different worldview questions. If you were to ask somebody these five worldview questions, you're going to get to the heart of their worldview, integrated with the two questions that I talked about at the last seminar about you know, how you come to that conclusion and what do you mean by that. So you integrate those two things and you get to the root. So it doesn't even matter what they say they believe. It matters what they actually believe. And then you take it from there. We'll take a few more. Go ahead. So God values everyone's life, but why would he let Satan um, kill Job's family for just to test one man? Yeah. Job is an interesting, uh, uh, interesting, interesting book. Depends on where you come at it with, with the book itself. Some people come at it from a very poetic side of it, and it's more of a poem and things and rather than historical. Um, I would tend to believe that it is historical. Um, why would God do that? Because the, the end game isn't death, right? So the end game is not you die, and that's it. But likely, even though Jews at that time didn't really have a concept of heaven and hell, Job's family would have entered the presence of God in whatever capacity that looked like, okay? The story I often think of to bring it to the New Testament is in um, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, okay? Ananias and Sapphira, um, there's a whole bunch of people giving to the church, right? The church is coming together. Everything is wonderful, and Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife team, they come separately to give money to the church. But they lie about what they give. And Peter calls them out on it and says, <laughs> you lied. And we know you lied. And they both drop dead. Like one after the other. They, 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 they both lie about it. And it, they still gave something. They just lied about it. And it's like, why in the world would you let that, that just seems a little extreme to make a point, right? I mean, it's like God making a point like, this is serious business. The church is serious business. You need to take this correctly. It seems a little extreme. So the question becomes is where did those two go? Well, I'd argue they went to heaven and they're hanging with Jesus. They, 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 they one sin, one thing. It didn't like, how, it's not like that's a deal breaker, right? But it makes the point because death isn't the end. Death is just the next, this is the end of one thing in the beginning of, of another. So it may look terrible on our side, but on the other side, no, it looks so bad. Does that make sense? Not a great answer, I'm sure, but off the top of my head, that's the best I can give you. But if you give me a few minutes to think about it, I might be able to expand on that. We're scheduled to go to 4.30. It's 4.25 right now, so we'll take a few more. And then if there's some lingering questions, you guys want to hang around for a few minutes, we can do that. Okay, so this might be like a dumb question, but like there are no dumb like, questions. How did like like when scientists talk about like dinosaurs and stuff? Like how does that come into play with like the Bible? Like I yeah, get, <laughs> yeah, that, no, that is interesting. That's, you know, the Bible seems to suggest that it's possible that people and dinosaurs somehow coexisted in some way, shape, or form. Um, the argument generally goes: How could if humanity brought you know sin and death into the world? How did dinosaurs continue to? How did they die first? It, it's sort of interesting. But God created, but the thing I always stick to is if we stick to a, a Genesis 1, a, a Genesis 1 and 2, a literal interpretation of it as best that we can, God created everything, right? A few days, it's all done. Here's everything. So that means dinosaurs included. Now, what does that do for the ark? I don't know. Um, so how all that fits in? I don't know, but here's the, the trick of it, and I, I try to remind people, is that Genesis was never intended to be a science book. 
Genesis isn't intending to tell us about the dinosaurs. It isn't intending to tell us about how they coexisted if they did, right? It's trying to tell us that God created and how he created and how that looked and the beauty and majesty of creation, how humanity fell and what God is doing to fix it. Because it's not long. We get, it's like boom, 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 and we're off to the races. By Genesis 12, we're off to the races and the story has begun. So there's not a lot of setup time in there, right? So there's just not a lot of space. The intention of Moses writing this book was not, well, let me make sure I get the dinosaurs in there because that's going to be a question later on, right? So unfortunately, it's just one of those things where we go, I don't know, but it, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm, they're, they're in there somewhere and I'm not, I'm not too concerned about it. I have, like everybody else, I have a laundry list of questions and we got the throne going, okay, question one, question two, you know. So one more. Choose wisely. Someone has, who hasn't, let me ask you, who hasn't asked a question? Okay. So you know how like people say that God spoke to them and told them to do this or that? Yeah. Like, to teach children or something yeah. like that. How do you know that God's talking to you or how do you get to the point where you can have those conversations with God and know that he's talking to you and telling you to do something? Yeah. Uh, and, and, or maybe hoping that, I don't know, if God ever physically spoke to me, that might freak me out. Um, although I had a dream that happened once and that freaked me out enough as it was, so we won't go there. Um, <laughs> that was weird. Um, but um, it, to me, I think it comes with practice. And it comes with not necessarily being afraid of getting it wrong. The desire is to be in the will of God, right? Now, sometimes... I think there are moments where God opens up a door and clearly shuts other ones. And you're like, okay, God, what do you want me to do? And circumstances sort of tell you what's going on, right? I had a decision to make recently about whether or not I was going to continue doing what I was doing or move in a different direction, right? So I pursued all of it and put it all out there. I said, okay, God, shut the doors and show me where you want me to go. Patiently waited and waited and waited and waited. And systematically, one by one, those doors were shut. And it's pretty obvious, right? Now, sometimes that makes life really easy. But other times, I think there's moments where God says, hey, listen, you could go here, you could do this, or you could do this. I don't care what you do. Just take my name with you. doesn't matter where you go. I often tell kids, I don't care if you're a stock boy at Walmart or a stock broker on Wall Street, carry the name of Jesus and leave it at that. Because ultimately, that's God's will, right? To wherever you go and whatever you do, God wired you a certain way to do what gets you out of bed in the morning, what makes you be who you are. So go do that and do it for his glory. And you'll be right in his will. Makes life a little bit easier. (laughs) One more. So uh, how do we know that God is real? How do I know that God is real? Whoo, that's the end of a good one. (laughs) All right. Um, well, I would say number one is the evidence is obvious, right? Number one, we have a bunch of stuff here. How did it get here? Okay. How did it get here? Did these chairs randomly appear out of nowhere or were they made? Right? Nobody is going to suggest that, you know, one day I walked into the room and just poof, there were chairs, and they popped into existence out of nothing. Right? Nobody said that nothing. When you have nothing, did you know this? When you have nothing, you know what you get? Nothing. Right? It just, that's just what it is. 
Okay, so if you start with nothing, you always will have nothing. But if you have something, there must be a cause for that something. Now imagine the universe for a second. Where did the universe come from? Right? The universe couldn't have just popped into existence. The universe can't be eternal and always been here. Something's got to happen, right? The only way that gives a sufficient explanation is some kind of creator, okay? The other part of that is I would jump to the resurrection. If Jesus resurrected, God exists. And all the evidence points that he did. And if Jesus, re- Jesus resurrected, he's got something to say. And he's got authority to say it. And all the evidence points that he did. So, right there, evidentially, I would say we've got a pretty good case. And it could do more, but you could look at the intelligent design, how things design. I mean, if you look at the human eye and its intricate designs, there's a thing called the uh, irreducible complexity where certain organisms are, uh, cannot be reduced to anything beyond what is very carefully crafted. And if you eliminate one piece of it, it would cease to exist as it currently exists. It's very interesting stuff. If you like science, irreducible complexity. Um, look up, um, it's a book called Darwin's Black Box. Um, it's a fantastic book, way out of my league. I am not a science guy or a math guy, but uh, I love that stuff when I sort of understand it. Um, so the next piece of that would be experientially. Right? Now, I can only speak to that myself and how I experience it, but when my experience lines up with what Scripture tells me, now we've got something, right? If my experience of who I believe God to be lines up with, you know, several thousand years worth of history of who God is, we've got some compelling evidence for who God is and, and how we know he exists. 